in a situation like Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria or anywhere like that, for the most part, I think you're just photographing what's going on in front of you. All I can do is talk to people, try and figure out what's happening today. And the soldiers laugh at me when I say this because I tell them it's like a vacation because it's just me going out and taking pictures. No one's calling and asking when the pictures are coming. Usually you're by yourself with them, so you're able to kind of work in a really free way. You're just kind of in this environment where it's a fascinating looking place and what they're doing is unusual. And for taking pictures, it's just a really, for me, it's a great environment. I like it. Welcome to the We Are Photographers podcast from Creative Live. I'm your host, Kenna Klosterman, bringing you true stories from behind the lens and behind the lives of your favorite photographers, filmmakers, and creative industry game changers. From their struggles to their wins, we get the real human stories about why they do what they do. I believe there is something to learn from everyone's story. If you're ready to join us in the hustle, listen, get inspired, and discover why in the end the creative journey is all worth it. Lucas Jackson is an award-winning senior photographer at Reuters. For over a decade, he's worked as a staff photographer covering every aspect of the news as well as feature stories, everything from the red carpet and concerts to natural disasters, politics, and wars. We talk about the work ethic he learned growing up on a cattle ranch and being a commercial fisherman in Alaska to pay for a photography education at Brooks. He describes his career path to becoming a staff photographer at Reuters and what that role actually looks like, its challenges and its opportunities. One day he might be covering the New York courthouse steps and the next filming a four mile glacier the size of Manhattan calving in Greenland. This is We Are Photographers with Lucas Jackson, and this is his story. Lucas Jackson, thank yep. you so much for being on the podcast, and especially thank you for letting me come to your home in Brooklyn and record here because I was in town. Yeah, my pleasure. It's nice to have you. We might hear the dogs at some point. What are their names? Uh, dog, our dogs are Harrison and Eleanor. And they might sound like little piggies in the background. So, Some little snorts. Yeah, some snorts, some <laughs> snoring, who knows. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. I just want to just start by talking about, you grew up in Fort Collins, Colorado. Did you come from a creative family? I lived in Fort Collins very shortly. Uh, I think we moved when I was one to New Mexico. And uh, we grew up on a cattle ranch there. So it was in a town of about 300 people. It was almost as far in any aspect from New York as you could possibly get. And I wouldn't say my family was creative per se, but it was an environment where you had to basically ad-lib how to get through the day every day. So it's waking up and making sure that the cattle are fed or the fences are fixed or... The hay is put up. It was a lot of chores. It was a lot of work. For us as children, it was there was no limitations to where we could go or what we could do where we grew up. So you were able to kind of improvise and discover and play in a completely unrestricted environment, which was fun. 
And so how did you leave? When did you leave? How did you decide to leave? Because that's a very different place than now living in New York. <laughs> very different. Uh, so I lived there from the age of one till I graduated from high school. And it's a small town, so my graduating class was about 17, I think it was 17 people. And when I graduated high school, I knew that I wanted to go somewhere else for college. I didn't have anything specific planned. So I applied to out-of-state schools, and the only one I got accepted to was Lewis and Clark in Portland, Oregon. And I went there for college and graduated in 2001 with a degree in mathematics. So I knew about photography and photojournalism, kind of a cliche, but my parents subscribed to National Geographic. So I grew up looking at National Geographic, like the dinosaur issues. Like there's one specific one that actually my wife got me for a wedding present that was by uh, William Albert Allard of the cowboy with his hands on his hips and there's an American flag in the background and a cow head in there, I think. And so there's stuff like that that's stuck in my head from like the 80s and 90s and that those magazines. But I'd never really pursued it as a hobby other than grabbing my mom's camera and taking pictures every once in a while of a sunset growing up. So after graduating from college, I graduated in the first big economic downturn of my generation, which was 2001, right as the tech bubble burst. So it was an environment where there was not a lot of jobs. I had not done a lot of internships or pre-graduation preparation that I now realize is so very important when you're in college. And so when I graduated, there wasn't a lot of opportunities in my major. So I basically called up a friend from high school and asked him if he wanted to go to Alaska with me. I knew that you could go up there and get seasonal work for the summer and make a decent amount of money. So he agreed. My friend Josh from high school agreed. And we drove up there and asked for jobs doing construction or working for the Forest Service. And after talking to people for a while, we realized that you could go commercial fishing and work on a fishing boat for three months and not spend a dime and get a check at the end of it. We thought that sounded pretty good at the time. And so we walked, uh, basically just walked down to the docks and walked from boat to boat and asked people if they needed uh, someone to work. We wound up painting one boat, like a research vessel, I think it was. And that was our introduction to the nautical employment. And so from there, we found a couple of jobs on different boats and... Uh, that whole summer we worked and I took a camera and slide film and shot pictures of just the experiences that I was having because I knew I wanted to remember it. And so coming back from that trip, I didn't make hardly any money the first year. My plan was to s travel for a year off all the money I was going to make and I didn't make anywhere close to the amount that I needed. But we came back and uh, I looked through my pictures and I th thought that they were nice and I put them together in a little collection and then lived in the Bay Area with a friend. While I was there, I started looking in the alumni directory that our college had to see what people were doing and to see if I could find someone to talk to to try and figure out what to do as a career. And looking through these directories, you see a lot of people who are working at you know big companies doing whatever, and one person's name said photographer. And I thought, well, that's interesting that someone's career is actually a photographer. And so, uh, I reached out, and she agreed to meet with me, and we sat down and talked. Um, she said, you have a natural eye for composition because you're, you're putting things in your pictures that might not be perfect, but they're not 
terrible and you 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 have a way of seeing things that if you uh concentrated on it could work out and she's the one that told me about brooks institute in california and so i looked into it and i i quote unquote applied and got in and so i figured you know the one thing i made sure that I'd, a i was paying for it so that necessitated me to have to go back to alaska every summer and make money that helped me pay for school pay for rent and pay for equipment so that i didn't have to work while i was in school i could concentrate on what i was doing and also use the student kind of tag I had at the time to reach out and network and meet people and ask questions. And so uh, I would take a class or two, and then I would go to Alaska and work, and then take pictures up there, and then come back and take another class, and then go work and take pictures. And so doing that did two things. One, it allowed me to kind of absorb the things I was learning and execute them in Alaska, which was nice. And then two, it also built up kind of a portfolio that was relatively unique because it wasn't a s commercial fishing wasn't something that a lot of people had spent a lot of time photographing. Those two things actually helped get me into the Eddie Adams workshop in 2004, which was great and also a big wake-up call because I had been kind of looking at my work and comparing myself to my peers at Brooks Institute, which was helpful, but Going to Eddie Adams really showed me where my peers were, and it was almost across the board exponentially farther along in their careers than I was. Their photographs were significantly better than mine. And talking to editors and doing the portfolio reviews there, I really realized that I was really, really far away from where I wanted to be if I wanted to make it into a successful career. So for me, it was a big wake-up call. I came out of it having a much clearer idea of where I needed to be and what I needed to do. And so about a year after that, my portfolio was significantly better than it was going into it. So that was my kind of early career path. Were there moments where you said, I can't do this? And how did you keep going? I still have moments where I look at my pictures and I don't think that they measure up to a lot of my peers, you know, people I look up to in the industry. But I knew from very early on at, at Brooks and at my college before that, that growing up on a ranch, the way that my parents raised us, that I knew I had the work ethic to succeed, whether or not I had the vision or the compositional you know, abilities or any of the artistic side of what this industry takes, I knew I had the ability to work really hard and the stubbornness that this industry requires sometimes and saying yes when the phone rings. So what's your process of figuring out what the story is, what to photograph? An ideal process is what actually occurred with the Greenland project, which was a lot of pre-planning went into that, a lot of discussing with the scientists that I was going to be working with, what they were doing, the logistics of it I had roughly planned out ahead of time. The best part about that was that I had spoken with people at Reuters in all of the departments. So the techs people knew what was happening and what was required of me and what I was looking for from them. The graphics department was telling me what they needed and we were communicating. And so that project was great because for every part of it, 
everybody that was involved in it kind of knew what we were going to come back with, except nobody knew, me included, what the pictures were going to be because you just didn't know what situations would present themselves and what it could have been foggy the whole time and it would have been a completely different story. And so that's a big part of my job is figuring out what I can, what I can take pictures of and what in the situations that I'm in is the important thing to be photographing. Is it the scenery? Is it what's going on with the people? Is it the emotional reaction to something? And so that's a big part of my job is being able to think as I'm in the field with often not a lot of input to figure out what I need to photograph that kind of captures what's going on. Tell me about the four mile glacier calving. Yeah, so that's a perfect example of uh, stubbornness and luck kind of coming together. So I had spent, I think at that point it was three or four days with the scientists in their camp on the side of this glacier. And every day I would set up a camera on a tripod, aim at the glacier. I did a lot of time lapse just in because I didn't know what was going to happen when. And I wanted some sort of long exposure showing that this glacier's moving. But for that entire period, nothing happened at all. I heard, I think, one rumble once. And so they were getting ready to move their camp from one side of the valley to the other side. And I kind of begged and pleaded and offered to send my some of my equipment home or whatever would decrease the weight so that I could go with them to the other side. And uh, we worked it out and I was able to go with them. And we landed that evening and we're getting ready for bed when the glacier started to calve. And because I had set my camera up, I was able to kind of run down to it and turn on the recorder and uh, the video and get that clip. I knew then that I had everything that I was hoping going into it because you kind of, you have your ideal what would happen going into it and you never really know if that's going to work out. But once I had the footage of the glacier calving and once I realized, and you can kind of see when you're watching it, you see me pan out and realize that this is way bigger than I thought it was going to be. I knew then that I had something really nice on camera with the pictures and the video, and I knew that it would make a good package. So that was really exciting for me. What did it actually feel like standing there watching this happen? And we hear about global warming. We hear about climate change. Not many of us actually get to see it right in front of our face and hear it and feel it. Right. Can you describe that? Uh, it's really overwhelming, actually. Uh, it's just, what's fascinating about it is the sound of it is kind of just constant low rumble, like a low thunder, just all around you. And what blew me away was how slow it's moving, but how massive the scale of it was. And you're watching these pieces of ice break off, and because of the way that the buoyancy in the center of gravity works, they kind of break off and then they slowly rotate and flip over because the bottoms heavy or lighter than the top. You're watching these things rise out of the water and you're realizing that it looks like it's kind of small from the distance that you are, but you're realizing that this is hundreds if not thousands of feet tall that is rising up and flipping over. And then you're seeing it happen, you know, a dozen different times with a dozen different different chunks of ice. And for me it was it took about a half an hour, it was a little over a half an hour, the whole thing. And it was just mind-boggling to realize w how much ice had broken off and how 
fast that actually is. Like a half an hour sounds like a lot of time. But for the amount of ice that came off of there, it's not a lot of time. And if that's happening fairly often on that glacier, and then every glacier in Greenland, and then every glacier around the world, and you start to realize, like, wow, this is a lot of mass. And if that's speeding up even a tiny bit, it's going to have huge repercussions in sea level. Now let's take you to Afghanistan. How do you take such a big story as a 13-year-plus war and create something that will move people? Everybody has a different answer for that, I feel like. And for me, I can't worry about moving people or the repercussions of what I'm doing. In, in a situation like Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria or anywhere like that, for the most part, I think you're just photographing what's going on in front of you. And all I can do is talk to people, try and figure out what's happening today, what this group of soldiers is going to do, what that group of soldiers is going to do. A big part of my job is just getting to the point where I'm with soldiers who are going and doing things. I try and photograph you know, people on the bases and people doing all the, logistic, the logistical back-end things. I have pictures that I've run on Reuters, actually, of soldiers making PowerPoint presentations which is probably 80% of what the Army does, but it doesn't make very exciting photographs. So I try and get in positions where people are going out and doing missions and trying to you know, put those building blocks together. And with Afghanistan, what's fascinating to me is that once you get down to like a patrol level where you have a lieutenant and a handful of soldiers, and they're going out, and they have one job for the day, and for them, it's fitting into this mission that came down from above and then the next day they'll get another mission you need to do this or you need to do that and for the most part it's just checking those boxes for them you know this is what our job is today so this is what we go out and do and then if they get attacked they react to that and then the what happens changes they have to react to that and they do it with different levels of force and so for me I'm just documenting all these processes and documenting just what it looks like there in a way that I hope captures the emotional weight of it, but also just what it looks like for them there. Because you don't see that without photojournalists going and doing it. But when you're there, for me, it's actually easy. It's just waking up and going along with whoever will have me. And the soldiers laugh at me when I say this because I tell them it's like a vacation for me because it's just me going out and taking pictures. No one's calling and asking when the pictures are coming. There's nobody else. Usually, you're by yourself with them, so you're able to kind of work in a really free way. And you're just kind of in this environment where it's a fascinating-looking place, and what they're doing is unusual. And for taking pictures, it, it's just a really... For me, it's a great environment. I like it. It's the danger stuff you have to be aware of but it's all very relative. You know, if I'm here, Afghanistan sounds dangerous, but if I'm in a gigantic base in Afghanistan, it feels relatively safe, but I'm not outside the base. And then once you go outside the base, you're with these soldiers and these giant metal trucks that are designed to withstand IEDs, and it feels relatively safe. And then you get out of the truck and you're walking through this field, and you're standing next to a stone wall, which in theory can stop bullets, so it feels relatively safe. and 
and it's, it's like that for the whole process up until somebody starts shooting or something blows up, and then it doesn't feel safe, but you're running to the nearest hole or whatever, and then that feels safe. You kind of put to fate the fact that the odds are that hopefully you won't get hurt, and you can't really worry about it, and all you can really do is react and try and think when you're there. And so that's how it kind of works for me. And then just taking pictures as people are reacting because they don't really pay attention to you when they're, you know, in a stressful situation like that, which is nice. What is the biggest misconception that you find young photographers have about what it is to be a photojournalist? A lot of people kind of feel like every job that they do or every story that they cover, no one story is going to make or break your career necessarily. When you're starting, it can feel like that. And it definitely helps if you do a good job on a really good story. But for you to have a career, you have to be able to do a lot of things well and on demand, which for young photographers is difficult because a lot of times when you're starting, you have nothing but time, which is actually this beautiful period that I wish I could go back to sometimes where you can spend as much time as you want on a story until you really feel like it's done. And then you can move on to the next one. And when you're working, that's really hard to do until you know you become successful enough to where people pay you to do that. But there's not a lot of people that are in that strata of the industry. And so for me, that's a big misconception is that you have to have everything figured out and you have to have everything perfect. And that's not necessarily the case. You just have to keep doing it. And ideally, it's different now because when I was starting, there was no Instagram. There was no, you know, websites were a thing, but they weren't as big a thing. You didn't have to worry about your social media presentation nearly as much. You were basically just judged on the work that you did. And people were looking at that. And now there's all these other avenues which is more weight on your shoulders, I guess. But at the same time, it's an opportunity for people to really show what they want to do and what they can do in a way that working doesn't. And some people, you know, some people stay on really on top of that, and that's almost like a second job. Uh, I'm a little bit lazy on my Instagram, unfortunately. I should be better at it. But, but that's what I use it as. I use it as something that I show. Kind of These are the pictures that I'm really proud of, and these are the things that I want to share uh, I hear a lot and in fact I think I was looking at your Twitter and saw a comment on somebody else saying this but we do hear a lot of instructors and artists and um, successful people talk about the fact that they are hired more based off of their personal projects their passion projects than often their body of work for clients is there a personal project in your past or something that you've dove into full-hearted like that my situation's a little bit different being on staff with personal projects uh, I do have a couple of them that I've worked on in the past early in my career so when I got hired at Reuters I was hired in New York as an entertainment photographer because I'd done a lot of that work when I was freelancing in Los Angeles and they knew that if I got the job, I could come out here and kind of flesh out Reuters coverage in New York City in that realm. Um, it's a lot of talking with publicists, meeting with people, kind of building this rapport 
in a professional way with this industry that's really difficult to get to know and deal with. So in that time, I was basically just covering entertainment events like red carpets and I mean, whatever the glitterati were up to. And so it's very, it sounds exciting and being on a, you know, an Oscars red carpet is very exciting, but it's just the same thing over and over again. It's very repetitive. And so during that time, I started shooting this series of people loving the subway, I guess you could call it. People hugging or kissing or just completely lost in themselves in the subway system here in New York. And uh, an editor who's actually now my manager kind of realized what I was doing. And so over time, they saved them all up and put them out as a collection. And it was neat to see that. But for me, it was just literally this escape, taking pictures that kind of had an emotional component to them that I felt like were aesthetically pretty and had this emotional content. So that was kind of a personal project, but it was not really planned to be. It just turned into it over time. And then I've also worked on one about uh, gun portrayal in the media that I'm still working on. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know where it's going to go, but it's something I started after covering Sandy Hook, which is the hardest assignment I've ever had because it wasn't like any other assignment where you go in and you're showcasing something that no one knows about. It was showcasing something everyone knew about. It didn't feel like you were adding anything to the conversation. People there didn't want us there. It was really difficult to cover. It's extremely sad, especially now that I'm a parent. Uh, But even before I was a parent, which at the time I didn't have kids, you just felt the sadness and the pain and the sorrow and the anger, and it manifested a lot of times towards us, which is understandable because we're outsiders and we're invading these people's space. And as I was there, I realized that that's part of my role in this job. People needed to vent, and if my presence allowed them to do that, then that's part of my job. That's part of what my presence there is for. But coming out of that, I felt... It just felt like, what is, what's the use of photography? What could it do? And so I started working on this personal project with uh, just guns and how they're used and seen and all that kind of stuff that I'm still working on. So those are the, my two main personal projects. And then Greenland was one, too, where I really got into it. And I really, you know, I feel like climate change, climate science are very important things for our society. And so just trying to find ways to communicate that to a general audience, you know, concentration on this that over time I can make something that as, as I look back could be cohesive and, and more expansive than uh, what I normally get to do. So, What is the process as a staff photographer of getting an assignment, going out and doing it? Working as a staff photographer takes away a lot of the question marks that you have when you're freelancing. I know, you know, who I'm working for. I know roughly what's going to happen from day to day. But the thing with photojournalism is I never know what's going to happen tomorrow. I mean, at the end of the day, I get my assignment. It could be covering a court case. It could be covering a demonstration. It could be traveling to go, you know, with the State Department on a trip or going to a hurricane aftermath or or whatever comes up. And that's the thing is it's hard to plan in advance stories, especially because staff, there's stories coming out every day. A lot of it's just reacting to what's going on. 
and you can't really have any plan going into it and figure out what you should be taking pictures of, take pictures that are s successful aesthetically and have information in them. I work from an information side of the spectrum. Some photographers work from an aesthetic side of the spectrum. And then ideally they meet in the middle, but depending on which side you kind of start with, uh, your hits and misses. My, my, my misses have a lot of information in them, but they're very boring pictures. Whereas someone who is working from the aesthetic side of the, f the formula, their unsuccessful pictures might, you might not know what it is, but it's still pretty. I try and force myself to do that more, uh, but it's very conscious. And, and so hopefully those two meet in the middle. And as a staffer, that's the thing that you're supposed to do is you're supposed to be able to do that on demand at any occasion, no matter what it is, and have the technical ability to do that as well. Looking back, what has been the life lesson that's been hardest to learn? Oh, man. Patience, probably. Uh, there's been a, a number of setbacks or slow periods where I f felt like nothing was happening, and that nothing good was ever going to happen, and that uh, maybe I should hang it up and go try something else. But sometimes you just have to kind of get through that by putting one foot in front of the other and letting go of your grand plan until things kind of get better and improve and you get traction and you can kind of start working towards what you want. It's hard to kind of keep yourself focused and to pull yourself out of the dark periods um, without just throwing your hands up and walking away. As long as I realize that and realize that that's not permanent, that I'm going to come out of that and that things will get better, they do. So that's, for me, the hardest thing. And I think that's a hard in this profession in general because you, somebody's always doing something amazing. And so you look around and you're like, wow, everyone's doing all this amazing stuff. That's not always the case. And you're also seeing everyone's greatest hits every day now. So just maintaining that optimism is difficult, but it's ge it gets better as time goes on. It gets easier. Final question. What excites you the most about what you do what what makes you feel most alive when you are out there creating a story so one thing has been uh, one of my greatest joys for my whole career and another thing is kind of becoming clearer over time so one of the great things about this job and about this industry and about this uh, career path is that you get to experience a lot of really interesting things and you get to be there and you get to see what it's like. You know, documenting something like Ferguson was fascinating because it was, you just had no idea what was going on, what was going to happen. And you're communicating what that's like to people in a way that is, it's impossible without the pictures or the video. But I think pictures are better at it, of really capturing these, these moments and these, what's happening and sharing that with people. And to me, that's always been the draw to this. And even when at periods when I didn't think I was doing any important assignments or taking good pictures, I could always find these moments along the way that I was doing that. And as long as that was happening, I was happy. And I could say I'm doing what I want to do and I'm, this is great. As I've moved along in my career, I've gotten to the point now where I can try and pitch ideas like Greenland or some smaller stories that we've done like we did one, I did one in Puerto Rico on helicopters helping 
move water and food around the island. And it's not this groundbreaking story, but it's communicating something that's happening to people in a cohesive way. And at Reuters specifically, we have this amazing logistics set up globally. And seeing that in action and seeing it on the back end kind of come out in this presentation is really exciting. Well, Lucas, on behalf of the folks who are on the other side of consuming your work, of being informed by what you and your colleagues at Reuters do, thank you. (laughs) And thank you for sharing your stories uh, with us here on We Are Photographers. And it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Thanks for coming. I've enjoyed it. I'm Kenna Klosterman, and you've been listening to the We Are Photographers podcast from Creative Live. You can see more of Lucas Jackson's work on Reuters' The Wider Image website, where they feature all of their photographers, as well as on his Instagram, which is at Lucas underscore Jackson underscore. Here at Creative Live, we believe there's a creator and a photographer in all of us. And yes, that means you. If you're looking to get fresh perspectives, inspiration, or skills to boost your hobbies, business, or life, we've got a class or two for thousands for you to check out. So join us over at creativelive.com. And for those of you who are brand new to Creative Live, welcome to our community. We have a special gift for you, and that is using the code WEARPHOTOGRAPHERS, all one word, no spaces, at checkout and you will get $10 off your very first purchase. And if you haven't already, subscribe to We Are Photographers wherever it is that you are listening. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Lucas Jackson and we will see you next week.